Good morning. My name is Nick, in case we haven't had a chance to meet. And as you've heard, this morning we're starting a brand new series called The Waiting Room. And I'm just going to say it. Waiting stinks. Yeah? You all agree with that, right? I mean, it certainly isn't the most intelligent thing I've ever said, but it's probably one of the truest things I've said. Waiting stinks. We're not, we're not fans of waiting. There's people we, we don't like to wait. It's like we're convinced in our, in our core that, that waiting's a bad thing. I mean, think about, how we, think about how we improve stuff. Like, how do we make it better? Make it faster, right? We speed it up. So you have, you have walking, and then you have speed walking. You have reading, and you have speed reading. I even came across this last week, something called speed yoga, which just doesn't make sense to me at all. Like, picturing this in my head is a lot of fun. That'd be, that'd be a great thing to watch, wouldn't it? The way we think you make things better is you speed them up. We're impatient people. We don't, we don't like waiting on much of anything. And if you're, if you're like me, then you've probably got areas in your life where like your impatience is supercharged. It's like really close to the surface. Like for me, it's driving. Yeah, I'm not like a road rage guy, but there are a few, certain things when I'm driving where I find myself, my, like my patience is just gone. Like when people take forever to turn right. I mean, really? Like, are we going to come to a complete stop? You're going to put it in reverse now, right? Your blinker's going to burn out before you find Just turn right, right? Are you with me? Yeah? Or with my son, when he puts on his socks, he's got that weird thing with the seam and the toe seam. Like, if he feels it, he gets all weird and starts freaking out, and then I start freaking out, and I'm getting impatient because he's impatient. Y'all got places like that in your life? Yeah, or our impatience. Thank you. Someone's awake. Yeah, we're, we are not patient people. We, we do not like to wait. Now, this is all good and fun. I'm just trying to loosen you up a little bit or laughing. But when it comes to what we're talking about uh, with a waiting room in this series, uh, we're not just talking about our struggle with patience. That's only part of it, isn't it? Really often, I think what makes waiting so hard is the uncertainty within all of it. That's really what makes waiting difficult. It's the unknown Right? It's, it's, it's not knowing. It's the lack of clarity. Like, how do you feel when somebody comes up to you and they go, listen, I got something really important we need to talk about, but we can't talk about it right now. How do you feel about that? Can we just like get a collective eye roll? To, don't do that. Just don't do that. Wait to say you've got something important to talk about when you can actually talk about it because waiting to find out what it is is the worst part. Am I right? Like what makes waiting so difficult is the uncertainty involved. This is a real thing. In fact, research has shown that the anxiety often involved with something like uncertainty, it actually changes the way our brain perceives time. It like slows it way down. This explains why the DMV is so excruciating. It really does. And if you work for the DMV here, we love you. We really do, but call me. I've got a few ideas for you. But what happens is you walk in and you literally, the place can be packed, but you don't have any idea how long this is going to take. You really don't. And they give you the, the little number. That's sweet, isn't it? Isn't that cute? Give you the little number and they got the little clicker up on the wall. Tells you what number they're at and how many more. But that doesn't help you at all. It doesn't help you at all. It's like it might be two numbers until it's your turn, but how long is that going to take? That could take an hour and a half. There have been times too, though, where I'm like 15 numbers away. And so I'm thinking, oh, I'm just gonna go out to the car and get that book that I was reading. By the time I get back in, they're two numbers past me and I gotta start all over. 
That's the worst part of it. You really haven't, you have no idea. You could be there all day, right? Uncertainty is really what makes waiting so difficult. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the waiting room. These sort of moments, these seasons of uncertainty where we aren't really sure about what's gonna happen or if it's even gonna happen at all. Because if we are honest, I think a lot of us in this room, we live with a, a sort of smoldering fear that we've been wasting a big part of our lives waiting for something that's probably never gonna happen. That's what we're getting at when we're talking about the waiting room. Or another way of thinking about it, it's like that middle place. The waiting room is that middle place. In the Bible, it sometimes refers to it as like the wilderness. And so it's times in our lives where, where we're not where we used to be, but we're not necessarily where we wanna be either. You ever been there? That middle ground, right? Where, where things have changed, but they haven't necessarily resolved. And we're uncomfortable. It's different. This is like, this is like your 20s, right? This, this is your 20s. 20-year-olds in the room, I'm looking at you. That's a hard time in your life. It's like you graduate, you've grown up a little bit, okay? But when you're at home, home doesn't feel like home anymore, does it? It feels a little different but you haven't made a new home either. And so you're kind of in this weird middle place. We can experience that in all sorts of areas in our lives. In a marriage, things change, right? And when it changes, sometimes it's hard because so things have sort of gotten stirred up, but they haven't settled yet. It's this in-between time. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about the waiting room. And often we find ourselves asking questions like, will it always be like this? Will I ever get my chance? Will that person ever come into my life? Will I ever get that opportunity? Will I always feel like this? Will it get any easier? Are you tracking with me? This is what we're gonna be wrestling with over the next several weeks. It's like, what do you do when there's really nothing you can do? You've been there before. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 11. That's where we're gonna start. We're gonna kind of move around a bit this morning and be in a couple of different places. But I'm gonna go ahead and tell you that some of you, this message might leave you feeling a little wanting. I'm not gonna answer all your questions. We're not gonna get to everything. And here's why. This is week one of a six-week series. I'd love for you to come back next week, right? But this is something I think we've gotta take our time with. We can't rush through it. And we are gonna get practical over the next six weeks, but I don't think this starts there. I have found that a lot of, of how we navigate these waiting rooms in our life, these seasons of uncertainty, where things are not comfortable and they don't always make a whole lot of sense, I have found that how we navigate that, it really begins and ends with how we think about them and ultimately what we believe about God. So that's where we're gonna be this morning. Matthew chapter 11. How about we pause for a word of prayer? Ah, God, we need you. We need you. And Lord, this word that I'm going to share this morning, it's one of those words that uh, needs a whole lot of help from you. Help to get around defenses, help to get around our cynicism, help to get around our frustration. And so Lord, I pray that you do all of that. You disarm us, you open us up and speak to us, Lord, because I know we need to hear it. We all need to hear this, me especially. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is hanging out with his disciples when these guys come up and they are followers of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has sent them to Jesus to ask Jesus a question. 
Now, real quick, who's John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the guy that wore like the itchy clothes and he ate locusts and he lived out in the desert, kind of a weirdo. But despite that, he was a big deal. John the Baptist was a big deal in his day and age. People came from all over the place to listen to him preach. I mean, crowds came out of the city to hear him because he was an incredible teacher. And at the same time, they came out to have him baptize them, which was a symbol of their their repentance. They wanted to sort of turn things around. They wanted to commit themselves to the way of God. So people were coming out in droves to hear John the Baptist. Now, he was Jesus' cousin. Some people forget that. They were family. They were blood. But what really puts John on the map in terms of the Bible is that John is the first person to publicly recognize Jesus as the Messiah. That's a big deal for first century Judaism. The Messiah was the anointed one. He's the one they've been waiting for for so long. The one that God was going to use to set everything right. John's the first one to say, it's Jesus. Jesus is the one. All of you people coming out here to hear what I have to say, you're interested in me, but I'm telling you right now, that's the guy. That's the one you need to be interested in. I mean, to to the effect he even says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. It's kind of a cool thing to say. But he points the attention to Jesus, right? He's one of the first ones to sort of express this, like, almost certainty. Jesus is the one we've been looking for. I say all of that because here in chapter 11, something weird's going on. John has sent his followers to ask Jesus a question. And here's the question. Are you actually the one? Are you really the guy? Or did I make a mistake? Am I wrong? Did I get my hopes up? I mean, can you tell me, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Or should we, should we be looking for somebody else? What in the world? What happened? John's one of the first ones to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. But now all of a sudden, he's asking questions about that. What's going on? Well, it has a lot to do with why John isn't there asking Jesus this question in person. Why isn't he asking himself? It's because he's in prison. He's been put in jail. Way back in chapter four, John got himself into some trouble for calling out the crookedness of Israel's political leaders. They were the Herods. Technically, they were kings, but they were really just like these pawns the Romans used uh, to sort of oppress the people. And they were crooked. And John called them out. He had a big mouth. I like this guy. He spoke out against them, and he got put in jail for it. Again, this happens in chapter 4. I want to read to you a couple verses from chapter 4. You don't have to go there, but I think this will help us to understand why now, all the way in chapter 11, John's asking this question of Jesus. Matthew Chapter four, verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Just read that first verse to you again. It's like, feel that for a second. When Jesus heard that John, his cousin, John, his biggest supporter, John, his biggest fan, John, the person who recognized who he was when nobody else did. When Jesus heard that he was in prison, he withdrew. Ugh. And this verse mentions some geographical locations, some cities, some areas. And it does that for a reason. Because if you were to look how this plays out on a map, 
If you look at when John gets arrested, he gets taken to, to Herod's uh, prison. We know where that is. It's in a different part of the country. If you look at where that's at to where Jesus withdraws to, Jesus heads in the complete opposite direction. He goes to the beach. He withdraws. Ouch. And now here in chapter 11, John's fed up. He's tired. That happened in chapter four. Seven chapters later, John still hasn't heard anything from Jesus. It's been at least a year, probably more like a year and a half, and John hasn't heard anything, nothing. Jesus hasn't sent any word to John. He hasn't checked on him. He hasn't spoken up on his behalf. He hasn't sent him a cake. I mean, he hasn't done anything, nothing. Just quiet, just silence. And so John's fine. I'm done. I can't, what's going on? Jesus, are you, are you the guy? Are you who I thought you were? If not, like, why aren't you involved? Why aren't you speaking up? Why are you so quiet? Why are you absent? You ever been there before? It's the waiting room, isn't it? It's when you, you would love for God to say something, just something. Speak up, show up, do something. And you start asking these questions. Does God even know? I mean, do you know? Are you aware? Maybe you weren't aware, God. I'll get you a break because I don't want to believe you don't care. You don't care? This is the place John is in. Now, here's where it gets a little even more bizarre. Let's keep going before we un unpack all of this because Jesus gives John's people an answer. He gives them an answer. I want you to go back. I want you to tell John this. So verse four, Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Verse six, this is an interesting verse, we'll come back to it. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I mean, it's kind of weird, think about this. Basically what Jesus is saying, I want you to go back and I want you to tell John about all the things I'm doing for everybody else. Huh. And if you just kind of read it, you almost have to think, is there some beef here? I mean, here's a moment, Jesus, for you to extend some compassion towards John. I mean, to say something, to check on him. And basically, I just want you to tell him about everything I'm doing for everybody. What is going on? You, in a moment, you think, Jesus, is your feelings changed towards John? Do you have hard feelings towards him? Not at all. Because as soon as his people leave, listen to what Jesus says. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, why did you, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Listen to this. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Man, what a thing to say about somebody. Can you imagine Jesus, anybody saying that about you? I mean, Jesus essentially is saying, John is the greatest human being ever born. I mean, he is as good as it gets. We kind of got to let all this sort of sit here next to each other for a bit, because I think it's actually really profound. And Jesus has never been more sure of his feelings towards John, of what he thinks about John. But now John's not so sure of what he thinks about Jesus. Why? 
his waiting room. He's in a place where things aren't necessarily making sense. And what is he tempted to believe? That Jesus isn't who he thought he was. Do you see how this often works? I mean, when we're in the waiting room, we, we, we find ourselves living here. Where, where nothing's comfortable, things are in flux, it's all kind of upside down, but it seems like breakthrough's happening for everybody else. You ever felt that way? It's like God's showing up for them, God's showing up for them, and we begin to really ask these questions. Where are you, God? Do you hear me? Do you see me? Do you even care? And so what, if we're not careful, there's this sort of despair that sets in, and we can buy into these lies. And I wanna share these with you. I call these the lies of the waiting room. When we're in that middle place, that place of uncertainty, we can often buy into these. The first one goes like this, I'll never be happy again. Some of us have some good old days behind us when the kids were in the house, right? When you used to live there, you're a part of that neighborhood, that community, when they were still alive, these good old days. And when that changes, sometimes on the other side of that, we can buy into this lie that, that if it doesn't go back to how it was before, then it will never be good again. We can buy into that. And this sort of despair sets in. Sometimes the lie that gets us goes something like this. No good can come from this. And that happens when it hurts really bad. It's like you, you can tolerate people giving you the Christian mumbo jumbo when it's not that bad. People say, hey, listen, man, God can work something good out of this. But how do you feel when it like really hurts and somebody comes to you with that? It's like that works for everything else, but not for this. This, this one's bad. This one's bad. It's always gonna hurt. It's just gonna be pain. No good can come from this. And when we buy into those, ultimately we buy into the third lie that goes like this. There's no point in going on. I missed my chance. Things can't really turn around. The only thing I can do is accept this is how it is now. Just give up, just quit, just throw in the towel. See, what this text does, though, to me, whew, is yes, it recognizes that we're in those places that it feels like God has abandoned us, that God isn't there, that God doesn't care, but, it's a big but, it also confronts us with a different possibility, with a different option. The fact that it is possible for us to feel like we are abandoned, but for that to not be true. It is possible for us to feel like we are in the middle of all this uncertainty by ourselves and for the fact that God is very, actually very much with us. You see, we, we tend to operate as if there's only like two categories, two places we can be in. It's like if things are good, then we think, well, God must like us. Things are awesome. God is good. I must be making him happy. Everything's great. It's category one. Or we live with category two. All of a sudden, things are bad. We're not comfortable. And so we assume God must not like me very much, right? But what this text does is it confronts us with a third category, a third possibility. The truth is God's feelings towards you don't ever change. God's for you. God's with you. God's on your side. But guess what? Sometimes things aren't always gonna make sense. I mean, it is possible for us to be in a place where it feels like God has abandoned us, but for that to be the furthest thing from the truth. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse six, when he says, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Here's what he's saying. Blessed are you when you don't get tripped up because I don't show up when, how, where you expect me to. Blessed are the ones who don't mistake my silence for my absence. 
Blessed are the ones who don't confuse their lack of clarity with me having a lack of concern. I don't know about you, but I, I need texts like this. Like, I'm so glad that they exist. Because I've been in the church thing for a while, and sometimes I feel like we're guilty of selling people Jesus on these, like, warm and fuzzies. It's like, hey, listen, come follow Jesus, and I promise you all that bad stuff's going to go away. And then when that doesn't happen, people think they bought into something that doesn't work. And what I have found is that, man, faithfulness is about learning to, 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 to hold on to this, even when it feels like God is being silent and God is being absent, to trust that there is, God is still very much with us. That it's possible to feel like you've been abandoned, but for that not to be true. It's possible to feel like you are on your own, but the fact is that God is very much with us. And I've had the opportunity, the privilege, you know, of walking through some really difficult things with people. It's part of the job. You know, they invite you in, and it's, oftentimes it's things, that doesn't even make sense to me. I mean, it is just so confusing. And, and it's been totally different situations. You know, people going through this, people going through that, and it's all really hard. But there's one thing these folks often have in common, the ones who are able to push through it. And it's behind all of this, they never let go. Even if they're hanging on by their fingertips, they never let go of this belief that they're not in it by themselves. That there's somebody else involved. That God is there. That God is present. That God has not quit on them. That does not mean they don't shake their fists and ask a bunch of questions. But what it means is they believe that there's always somebody there to shake your fist at. There's always somebody there to ask questions to. I mean, hear me, y'all. This, this is where really enduring through waiting rooms, this is where it starts and where it stops. It is this audacity to trust that we're not going through it by ourselves. That there is a God who has promised to never leave us or forsake us. Because when we do that, when, when we open ourselves up to that, here's what we begin, begin to experience. I know we all want to rush here. We're going to get there. But we begin to experience this, that time waiting doesn't always mean time wasted. I'm going to say that again. Time waiting doesn't always mean time wasted. We're going to jump back to Exodus chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, flip back that way. Exodus is a story, of course, of, of how God delivered Israel out of Egypt, rescued them from slavery, Right? did all this through Moses. Moses. Some of you have seen the movie. You've seen the cartoon, right? We're familiar with this story. It's one that I've been reading through lately on my own. It's been really getting to me. And chapter three is where God first shares this like monumental task with Moses. Let's him know what's gonna happen, right? This is where it's going down and what, what, what you're gonna be a part of. At this point in his life, Moses is a shepherd and he's out in the middle of nowhere, Actually, at a place called Mount Horeb, which means the wasteland. It's wonderful. And God speaks to him through a burning bush, right? Which totally makes sense. And this conversation is so layered. It's amazing. Some of you know it really well, and you know there's way more going on than what we're just going to look at this morning. I want to zero in on a part, though, that I think is super helpful for us this morning as we get this series started, all right? Chapter 3, look at verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, 
a land flowing with milk and honey. Mm-mm-mm. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. <sighs> and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Here's where it gets really interesting. Verse 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Let's unpack this because I think it's really fascinating. So God comes to Moses and says, listen, I'm going to rescue the Israelites out of Egypt and I want you to be my guy. To which Moses has a question. And I think it's a pretty fair question. What is it? Who am I? Wait, you're talking to me. You want this guy right here to do that. I'm having a hard time, God, understanding how I'm qualified. This feels a little over my pay grade. This is where his question is coming from. Notice his question is not about God's power, God's ability, God's might. What's his question about? How are you going to do all this through me? Right? He's doubting what's possible through him, what God can do through him. That's where, that's where the doubt's coming from, right? That's the question. And so then what God does, he responds. He says, listen, I will be with you. It's what we've just talked about, right? His promise is, I will be with you in the midst of all of this. And then he says, I'll tell you what, I'll give you a sign. Here's your sign. Here's how I'm going to help you with that question. Once you have rescued the people out of Egypt after the exodus is over, tell you what, we're going to be right back here on this mountain and you're going to worship me. That's how you're going to know. Now, if you're Moses, what's the problem with this scenario? What is it? This sign you're offering me, it's on the wrong side of the exodus, God. Imagine if you're him, like, God, okay, that's cute. That's really sweet. Appreciate that. Let's just think about this for a moment, okay? God, we're here, right? You and I, we're right here. And this sign you're talking about, all of us worshiping you on this mountain, that's like way over here, right? It's right here. You know what's in between here and there? A whole lot of big, bad stuff. You want me to march into a, the most powerful empire in the world and tell them to let a whole nation of people go. And your sign is after it's all said and done, we're going to worship you. Do you think you could do something for me like on this side of it? Right? Could you prove that to me? But again, his, his question isn't about God because God gives him some signs to prove how powerful he is. His question is about himself. His question is the doubt that he's having and what God can do through him. And here's what God knows, and I hope that we can all get this. God knows there is nothing he can do on this side of the Exodus that's going to answer Moses' question. The answer to that question is only on the other side of the Exodus. Here's the deal. Life is not for the faint of heart. Can I get a big amen to that? You can wake up for that, right? It's not. Life is not for the faint of heart. It isn't. I mean, on the one hand, it's beautiful. Life is beautiful. I mean, it takes my breath away sometimes. But at the same time, it's really hard. My wife calls it brutal. Beautiful and brutal. I don't think she made that up, but it's cute, right? It's brutal. Sometimes in the same moment, you see something that just, man, 
takes your breath away and it makes you cry. It's like, parents, how's it feel to watch your kid get married? What's that feel like? Probably good and bad at the same time, right? It's like it's kind of a picture of sort of what life is. It's both of these things. Life is not for the faint of heart. It's difficult. It takes a sort of resiliency. It takes like a grit to live it well, especially if we're trying to be faithful. We're trying to stay committed to the way of Jesus. It's like one of my favorite stories, just the guy named Jacob. It's who Israel, Israel's named after. Israel's named after a guy who wrestled with God, and during the wrestling match, God broke his hip, and he spent the rest of his life walking with a limp. I think that's a picture of what, it, if you're going to try to live this life well, that's what it looks like. It's not easy. It requires a sort of resiliency, a grit. And this resiliency, it, it isn't just something God can give us. It's something God has to grow in us. And God does his best work in the waiting room. In those places of uncertainty and confusion where we don't have all the answers, where, where things are frustrating. Because one of the things I've noticed is the waiting room has this way of waking us up to what we don't know. This is going to confuse some of you. Others of you will get it, but I'm going to go with it anyway, all right? We don't always know what we don't know. Did you know that? I mean, it's true. It's like one of the biggest reasons why you and I, why we don't grow, why we don't transform, why we don't expand, why we don't change. You want to know why? It's because we're not really convinced we need to. We lack a sense of urgency. I've heard it says that change only happens when the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain of change. That's when change really begins to take place. There's an urgency involved. And so what the waiting room does is it sort of wakes us up to what we don't know, to the fact that we've got some, some places where we need to change and grow. A little while back, David Olshine, y'all know David Olshine. He's been here to preach with us, big mentor in my life. He's a professor at CIU, the Bible College, and he's a professor of youth ministry. He invited me to come and share with his communicating to youth class. So these are all students who are trying to learn how to craft a message to give to groups of people. And he asked me if I would come and share one day. And I was like, man, I would love to. I've been doing this for 10 years and it's awful. And I want to share with them all about that. This is hard. And after 10 years of it, I was like, man, I would, I would love the chance to go back to like the 19-year-old version of me and sort of tell you, here's some things, man, if I would have learned this earlier, gosh, it would have helped so much. And so I was pumped. I had all this stuff. It was gold right? They're going to love it. I get there. It was the worst experience of my life. These 19-year-old chumps, <laughs> I don't really mean that. But they just looked at me like, are you done yet? Because I want to go to lunch. They weren't interested at all. And here's what I realized. Oh, oh, you've never actually had to do this yet. You haven't felt the fear yet, have you? You haven't had to look at a blank piece of paper or a computer screen and think, I got to come up with 35 minutes of stuff to say. Because that's terrifying. I realize they haven't been punched in the face yet. But it's often what happens, right? In life. is that These waiting rooms create this sense of urgency where we realize we've got some things we need to learn. It's one of the ways God uses the waiting room. One of the ways that we don't, we don't waste it. At the same time, and the most important things about life, I've found you can only learn from life. Like, imagine this. This will be fun. Can you imagine having a conversation with like your 20-year-old self? People said that if you could go back in time and, and sort of talk to them and, and tell them what they needed to know, I, that's an immediate dead end to me because they would, my 20-year-old self wouldn't listen to anything I had to say. I'm so certain. I had it all figured out. This is how it works. 
right? And so this idea of going back and talking to my 20-year-old self and trying to explain to them all the ways you're going to change your mind, all the things you still need to work on, all the stuff you don't know, they don't have the capacity for that. You want to know why? Because they haven't been stretched yet. They haven't gone through the waiting room. I mean, ultimately, you know, you know what's behind all of this? It's this conviction. It's this belief that the greatest thing God can do for us is not change something around us, but it's to use what's around us to change us. That's really the spirit of this whole thing. It's believing that time waiting doesn't have to be time wasted. I know we've had fun, we've laughed a little, but I also know that some of us in this room, we're, we're in something really hard right now. This is serious for you. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Things haven't turned out the way you wanted. Here's all I'm asking you to do this week as we get started. Just consider with me this. How much of this would be different if we could somehow stop using all of our energy to trying to squirm our way out of it all? And what if instead we'd lean into it? What if we would live in that waiting room with a sense of possibility that God's in there in the middle with you somewhere? Or live with this expectancy that God's gonna somehow use this to grow me? How different would that be if we could convert that energy to trying to get out of it Instead, we could convert that energy to trying to grow from it. That's where we're going to begin things this morning. And what I want to do right now is I want, to, I want to go back to those lies that we tend to believe in the waiting room. I talked to you about a little while ago. Instead, what I want to do right now is I want to, I want to confront us with the counter truths that are really based in the fact that we got a God who's with us promise to never leave us or forsake us. And what I want you to do this morning is I'm going to read them to you first, but then I would love for us to say them out loud together. And here's why. Because for some of us, that might be the first step to us actually believing them. Is if you can just hear yourself saying them. Because the distance between where you're at and actually trusting them seems like forever. But I have a feeling that if, if you could just make yourself say them out loud, that might be the first step towards not wasting the waiting. First one is this. It may never be the same, but it can still be good. What was behind you was great. But the thing I know about God is that he never gives up. God never quits. So for some of us, what we've got to do is learn to let go of some things and embrace a new normal. So could you say that out loud with me right now? It may never be the same, but it can still be good. Second one is this. This will not be wasted. I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how difficult it is. Our God has his way of taking the worst and using it for the best. How many of you in the room, I want to see you do it. How many of you are wearing a cross right now in some way, shape, or form? Raise your hand. Quite a few of you. Do you know what the cross used to be? cross used to be the ultimate symbol of shame, defeat, worst form of capital punishment the world has ever come up with. People in Jesus' day did not for a second think that one day people were going to be wearing it as jewelry. That's what God does. That's what Jesus does. He takes things. Our worst 
and uses them for the best. Say this with me. This will not be wasted. And then finally, my best years are not behind me. And we are people who believe in resurrection. We believe in life from death, which convinces us that, man, today doesn't have to be like yesterday. Things can get better. Things can change. Will you say this out loud with me? My best years are not behind me. We're gonna move into a, a final time of worship together. And I wanna recognize that these aren't things that we can just conjure up in ourselves, this type of trust, this type of faith, this type of belief. This is something we need some help with. And so if you're here today and this just feels like too much, I wanna invite you during this song, man, just to ask God to help you. I love the prayer of the man of the gospels. Lord, I believe, help me with my own belief. Help me to trust you even when it doesn't make sense. Help me to know that it may look like you've abandoned me, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room, all of us. Some of us are here and it's a miracle that we're even here. The things we've dragged in here with us. Lord, I pray that in this moment, you speak, you speak life into us. That Lord, you do whatever it is you have to do in us to open us up to the possibility that even though things may look like you've abandoned us, that it's not true. Help us to live with this sense of expectancy that our time waiting is not gonna be wasted. I pray for all of us who are bored, who are apathetic. Maybe we need a waiting room. Maybe we need something to come in and, and create some sense of urgency. And that's a dangerous prayer to pray. But Lord, it's no more dangerous than living a life numb and apathetic to all the things you need to do in our lives. So Lord, right now, I just pray you do whatever it is you have to do to make us more alive than we were before we got here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.